Welcome to the Yellow Peril Podcast, where we help you navigate the perilous world of Asian American identity through pop culture, sex, politics, and whatever other random stuff is currently distracting us. Welcome back, Yellow Perilers. Shout out to all of you Reyeses, all you Diazes, and other products of Spanish colonization. And all you Pacquiao's. This is Vubang introducing the Yellow Peril. Oki's not here today, but we have a special guest. Hello, this is Vubang. Wanted to welcome you to a very special episode of the Yellow Peril. We're doing a crossover pod with uh, one of our favorite podcasts, homies, John Reyes and Patrick King Most. Should I call you King Most or Patrick? Are we are we on the Patrick? It's Mr. Patrick King Most. So if folks want to check them out, their podcast is called Opening Set. How would you describe your podcast? I would describe my podcast as a DJ-centric slash lifestyle podcast that focuses on learning the story of people who happen to be DJs. Is that good, John, our producer? What do you think? I think that flies. <laughs> I think what separates us from other similar podcasts in the forum is it's part of our goal to explore the humanity of these DJs. And so we're not really talking about technical things. We're not talking about... Like it's very minimal on the actual music, but we're we're trying to learn who these people are, what their values are, you know, what their story is, and really shine the light on that, bringing to light that these people are more than just you know the party guy or girl, mm-hmm. but just actual people that have a job. And I mean, the goal I think with every episode is that hopefully people that people that are in other crafts or other industries can relate. Mm-hmm. to the people that provide the music you know yeah and if i could just add on to that real quick it's really about widening the narrative of djs because i think john had mentioned it that it's people for the most part just think djs are like the party guys that and i've said this before you know the guy throwing a cake and standing on stage doing like the you know jesus arms whatever at a festival when you tell the average person on the street that's all they think it is and that's that's a part of the story that's not false that's just one side of it and the same goes when you talk to your friends that are djs or just your friends that aren't djs but know you they think you're just this so it's really about widening the narrative and making it more inclusive great so all i heard is that we're going to have a cover for this podcast that's going to be steve aoki with his jesus hands out yeah i did i didn't want to drag steve aoki because it's just that's just you know it's an easy target and he's you know this is an asian-centric podcast i'm sure he's got clout in the community but yeah i don't know about that oh okay i think dev aoki has more clout in the asian community at this point good to know good to know so fuck steve aoki i don't know (laughs) i might have to delete that yeah maybe it might i'll take a might i think so the reason why we invited them onto the show is one of the last episodes they did with cutso shout out san jose shout out chaboya middle school and the bangers is you know this episode what you guys were talking about on the episode obviously was about cutso and a lot of the things that he's been doing over the years as a dj but what i wanted you to come on for was really about the conversation that happened in the middle of all that, which was about essentially about the changing in the Bay Area and the gentrification displacement of a lot of the black and brown folks Mm -hmm. that, you know, we essentially start seeing at all these parties and all these bars and clubs when we were, you know, when we turned 21 in the early 2000s. And think for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) 2015s. Yeah. What San Francisco was like in 2000, 2002, 2004, 
some of us here worked at particular clubs. Polling. You want to shout out all the old clubs that have closed since? Okay, yeah, because for the younger listeners, you could probably talk to your older cousins and mention, if you want to get cool points, be like Polang, Club 6, Storyville, which became Polang, Milk, but the owner of that is a piece of shit, so... Wow. But it was a really cracking bar, dude. Like, it, I, trust me, he's, yeah, it was a really like the awesome place in the club, an awesome club to go to. Um, Pink was one of my favorites. Do you remember Pink? Yeah, which became Soam that I worked at. So, yes, so rest in peace, Soam, rest in peace, Pink, Mighty, which is now Great Northern, which isn't, it's something a little different. So, yeah, drop that at the next family gathering. And also in San Jose, I want to shout out, is it Loft? Loft? Is that right? The Sofa Lounge, baby. God, it's been a while. Sofa Lounge. Yeah, last time I was there, was I was hanging out with The Roots just on a regular Thursday night. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jimmy Fallon's band, right? <laughs> That's right. Oh, the, the Questlove band. Yeah. Your grandfather's favorite hip-hop group. <laughs> John, what about some Sacramento clubs? Oh, man. Well, no. See, at that time, I was actually living here in the city, but I wasn't uh, DJing yet. I was... Are we talking about early aughts right now? Yeah. So I was going to like Snowdrift to Boondocks. Ooh. So I was a participant in the uh, hyphy era. Uh-huh. Well, I was the target demographic, I guess. So all those those memories are are very familiar. What's the club that became the ramp that everybody used to go to? Mission Rock. Mission Rock. Rock. Well, no, actually, the ramp is next door. Mission uh-huh. Rock still exists. Uh-huh. Now it's actually a brunch spot overlooking the san francisco bay that sounds like san francisco yeah and what's so funny and god it's it's a shame that things are cycles in this case is that by the time covid you know ends or whatever a lot of the clubs that our younger listeners have gone to won't exist or not even clubs but like concert venues bars etc etc they won't exist and it's because of some type of like major event like for us with gentrification this is now a pandemic, which you can we can talk about how both these things are connected and affecting the same people. But yeah, they too, unfortunately, and so will I. You know, hopefully, um, there's not too many casualties on, on our end, but it's it's in the air. And and one of the points that your podcast really brought up was, I mean, you remember when the tech scene opened up, yeah, in the Bay Area, like yes. it was. There was this transition where you know you would go out. Things were a little slightly dangerous. Um, I don't. I don't think that dangerous. I mean, I would say dangerous as in you'd get people would get in fights. It wasn't like yeah, but that happens still now. Maybe I'm just talking about San Jose. And San Jose was pretty rough. Yeah, San Jose's wild. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought fights were just par for the course in nightlife. That too. Yeah, yeah. Like not. I mean, now it's just a bunch of knuckleheads fighting. You know. To be fair, they did exist in the uh, like the venues that catered more toward the early 20-year-old demographic, like 21, 22, 23, 25 and up, like they didn't really happen. It was just more for the younger crowds. Yeah, I don't know who you know, to be honest, I saw more fights by like bros and drunk bros than like the crowds, and I mean black people and brown people that they were so afraid to have there. Like I never had a problem, but like bros and Karens of the world and you know of then and now they're the ones that are most likely by exponentially that would cause a fight and break things and, and you know ruin the party and all that stuff so but yeah San Jose was is a wild it was a wild place it is you know it's something special. it was a wild place and that's a whole whole podcast in itself I remember yeah. I remember whenever anybody 
found out I was from San Jose and I was, you know, they wanted me to come down. They wanted to come down and visit and I would take them. And, you know, of course they'd actually see a fight like literally happen. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I felt a lot safer in San Francisco. So when, you know, when you guys first started going out, I mean, what, how, what was the diversity that you saw? John, you answer that first. Yeah. When I, when I first turned 21 or even, you know, when I was going to the 18 and up clubs, I went to primarily hip hop venues and so, or clubs that played hip hop music. And so I was surrounded by a lot of uh, brown and black people primarily. And I think that it was also just a reflection of the type of music I was into and the music of the era. This was when hip hop wasn't as mainstream as it is now. And so if you went out and listened to hip hop music, that was party music, you know, it would be primarily black and brown folks. So Yeah, I think for me, it was very similar, black, brown, also a lot of Filipino. Most, I would say predominantly Filipino. Yeah, I would say the, yeah, for me, it was predominantly Filipino and it was hip hop, underground, underground music in general. And that includes underground R&B and underground house and electronic music. But yeah, you would see a lot more black and brown people, but also not so much color, but also working class white folks that were still in San Francisco that weren't pushed out yet, that were natives, that were, you know, were second or third generation San Franciscans, or you know, born and raised people of Oakland who, at the time, their city wasn't allowing to have clubs. And that's something I forget, that Oakland was very like, no, 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 you're not, we're not, we're not letting clubs really thrive. You, you take that to San Francisco. So you would see more of that. You would see more of a mixture of people from all over the Bay Area go to clubs in San Francisco. They would just congregate there. And then, yeah, this was, you know, so having spaces that predominantly brown or black or a mixture of both the music like john was saying the music lent itself to be more hip-hop or r&b and then you know the clubs that and then at the same time it, you know there's also like super racist clubs in north beach and where else that would you know have these like stupid dress code you know vague rules and we don't play that type of music here and we're only at, we're a lounge when we play house music and it was you can imagine the, the subtle racism that was happening in clubs but to answer your question it was yeah it was exactly what, what john was saying and then what year did you start recognizing the tech scene show up? And what were the initial impacts? I remember hearing in your podcast, like there was a lot, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of art and culture in San Francisco, and then slowly the tech scene started moving in. And probably, you know, in in sort of my own personal experience, the tipping point around gentrification occurs when there's a great mixture of art, culture, and technology. And so a little bit of money, art still there, and then slowly that transition happens. I remember you were talking about that with Cutso. Yeah, I think it's definitely like, it's a it's a gradient. You know, it doesn't just happen. I think with what you're saying, you also have to factor in that just the nature of San Francisco has always been a very artistic city, very progressive city, but also, you know, very white at times, pre, even pre-tech. So I, I want to make sure that, you know, tech is in this like crazy culprit because all these things we're talking about are kind of have been in motion for a while system, uh, systemically. Yeah, that's a good point. Did you know San Francisco is the only county in the Bay Area that's trending more white? All the other counties are actually getting more people of color trending upwards. Yeah, I'm not sorry. But at the same time, anecdotally, just from my own experience, I see more people, more black folks in San Francisco in the past like two years than I ever have, but that's because they're transplants from the East Coast working in tech or finance. So it's like this, and I've talked to other like natives of color in San Francisco. It's very, it's like a push and pull. It's like, yeah, it's good. We see more diversity, more black folks, but also they're of a different class and they're from a different city and they're pushing out a different class of people. So it's like, we're, I think what it is, we try to chalk up work. Where is this, where's a win? And like, oh, I don't know. So 
But yeah, when did I first start seeing it? I think if I had to like pinpoint like that where the light bulb went off was after the summit, <laughs> our, a cafe that our, our friend JP and other friends owned and operated. At the time, this was a revolutionary idea. Check this out, kids. Crowd around, story time. A cafe where you can go, bring your laptop and work all day and like maybe probably maybe buy a cup of coffee or two. That idea in the mission was so new that it flopped, which is now like the standard for every coffee place. Like there's even places that shut down Wi-Fi, like no Wi-Fi because they don't want that to happen. It's so crazy. Let's back up a bit and explain the other parts that made it revolutionary. We should we should note that it was in business week. And they, I mean, the heading was something crazy like, oh, this is like the new wave of people working. And it essentially paved the way for the WeWorks, right? Yeah. And so it's a cafe but it was surrounded by an office that was run by a guy who was an angel investor that was investing in different startups. And they each had an office upstairs and yeah. on the side. And you would need a key card that only someone that worked as one of those angel invested companies could get into. But all of them can hang out in the cafe anytime they wanted. So you were essentially having an office inside of a cafe. Yeah. What, the way you just, what you're describing right now is like, yeah. A bunch of people be like, yeah, duh, that's my company, you know? Yeah. But this was, what year was this? This was like 2006? 10, 11. 10? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2011. God, that's a decade ago, guys. <sighs> yeah, that, that was really early on the co-working model, right? Yeah. Like, now you see, it, you see it in the city at like Covo and... Uh, you brought up WeWork, but now that I think of it, because I, I frequented that spot as a patron, and that, thinking about it now, I was like, oh, shit, that really just projected how people are going to work, you know, all these digital nomads or people that work at startups, and, like, this was the lifestyle that they wanted, and now it's kind of the norm, you know? Yeah. Yeah, SoundCloud was one of the businesses, angel investing companies, and I think... yeah. Something else, mad successful. And then Steve Jang, a friend of ours, who's like the owner, the co-owner of Uber, and uh, I don't know, invested in like Blue Bottle, Matt Early, and you know, he's got a couple bucks in the bank. He was in the mix a lot, but so yeah, I would go to that neighborhood almost every day because also it was really crazy because the staff was prominently of color, progressive people, in onto music, into nightlife, into art, kind of ideal. It made sense for that for all of us to work there together because we all came from nightlife one way or another. But after the place closed, I didn't go to the Mission of Valencia for a good while. The one day I'd go for a walk, 20, again, 2010, 2011, six o'clock. And it's like, it was nothing but a sea of these like new wave people with money, like all of a sudden just getting out of work and walking around. Like I didn't recognize my neighborhood. And they're getting dropped off in like really nice cars and like the fancy new buses. Their clothes were nice. It was just, again, I, I just, I've never, I remember sitting on the corner and be like, yo, where the fuck am I? And you know, and then you just imagine it just kind of spirals from there. Like, okay, where do those people go and party? What do they like to do? What kind of music do they like? Where are they not going to go? And that's kind of how everything starts kind of, that's how this tech kind of started taking clubs out. And also, you know, we had a little bit of recession too coming out of the thing too. You know, not to be long-winded, but Soam, the club I worked for, was a victim of that because not just bad management, but also the new wave of people that were in San Francisco now, they're into like electronic music and Burning Man and, you know, going to clubs till six in the morning doing drugs, not listening to hip hop, not listening to R&B, or not listening to house music that was soulful, made by people of color. So is again, is all these shifts, so... I want to go back to Summit a bit because, I mean, you were there during the protests against them, right? I mean, the irony of a bunch of local 
Asian and brown kids like yeah. running this this cafe and then describe the protests that were, you know, the anti-gentrification displacement protests that were going on. It was basically people that moved into San Francisco in the first wave, tech wave of gentrification in like the late 90s. So I think that's one thing that kind of always made my head spin is, you know, the the well-meaning ally who's really just as problematic as the person who doesn't even try to play those politics. Like you're still like super tone deaf and clumsy about it. So you would think they would be even more for like, oh, a bunch of, you know, black, brown and people, progressive people having a tech business in San Francisco. But no, we, they would, yeah, it was the worst, dude. It was, yeah, they, they were not our friends whatsoever. It's just really interesting because, I mean, I, I lived in the mission for, for 10, 11 years, and I never really said I'm from the mission, you know? You know, once you're born in San Jose, you'll forever be branded with that. Fact. You know, my 408 <laughs> tattoo in teal is, you know, I'll try to let you guess where it is. I've never seen it. But it's just a strange thing. It's just a strange, it's just a strange thing to like show up in the mission and, you know, be from San Mateo like you are, be from San Jose and say that you're an outsider, which in some ways is true. In some ways it's, it's not. Yeah. You know, I think John's take on this is interesting because he's from Sacramento, an outsider, but been living in SF and in SF in the scene for like a minute. So, yeah. So I guess back to the idea of when I saw the gentrification occurred, I think I was a little too new to the city to really understand what was going on. Well, my experience is a little different because I I graduated from school here in San Francisco in 2006, and then I left, and I didn't move back until 2009. And so there was a dramatic difference just in the vibe, but I didn't really pick up on it. When I really felt the effects of gentrification was when I was DJing in Oakland, and the light bulb clicked for me when I dropped a, a record. I I don't know. It might've been like five on it or just some, I, I dropped a Bay area record and pe- half the room didn't know what it was. And this was, you know, 2015, 2016. And that was like a light bulb moment for me of like, wow, when I started DJing at this venue, this was my go-to where if I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, I could drop this record and like at least center myself and get the party back going. I dropped it and just got blank faces looking back at me. And I just remember going home that night thinking like, damn, a lot has changed in the Bay area. And that's when I really started reflecting about the effects of gentrification, you know, as a DJ, as a person in nightlife. And this was Oakland, like, you know, 14th and Broadway. So, or 14th and Franklin. So if if I was you, I would have wanted to make sure that it was a gentrification issue and just not an age issue. And you should have just dropped G-Eazy right after that to see. G-Eazy didn't exist. (laughs) Oh, he did. He was like in Berkeley High or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't even... But see, I I think when it comes to Native Bay Area folks, you they there's a good job of the music translating. Even like this this song, it was a big record too. Like it was a it was probably a hyphy standard. But the thing about youth here in the Bay is they know all those records. Like Native Native Bay Area folks know all the hyphy records, even even outside of the big three. You know, like they know obscure mixtape tra- mix hyphy records. You know. And yeah, I, that's why I chalk it up less to an age thing and just like, oh, these kids just aren't from here, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's, if I could add to that, like when we play I Got Five on it, there's that part where the whole crowd goes, bitch. <laughs> I don't even know where that started. It just, I, yo, that's just a very San Franciscan Bay Area hip hop thing. 
Yeah. And you know, it's funny. That's more San Francisco than, uh-huh. uh, you know, that's even, there's a niche in the Bay Area that. A niche of a niche. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, but then as time would go on, especially at the peak of this gentrification era, little by little, that bitch, that part that everyone would yell was less and less. And now it's to the point where I don't even play that because it's like, I don't think it's really going to land and hit anymore. Wow. It's those little things. Yeah. It, you can you can play the original and no one would know the difference. That's crazy. So you're saying every year there's less and less people saying, yeah. No, no. It already happened. That's so crazy. That's a great way to, but that's yeah, a great way to explain gentrification is, yeah. But, you know, if you were saying, you were playing that yeah. song 15 uh-huh. years ago, the whole crowd yes. yells it. Yes. And then every year there's just one less person. Yeah. It's a language that's dying out. Like if we had a camera at Mighty just sitting there taking a picture every every six hours, you'll yeah. see less and less people screaming, Biat! Yeah, at that part. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. It's a language for real that's dying out, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and this is the thing is like, this is, I think we're now we're in this, like we're, we've been living in a post-gentrification at San Francisco. Now it's, I mean, I think at one point I was like, how can we stop this? And people were like, you know, protesting and signing things and whatever. Now it's just like, how can we survive? And now I think we're in this, well, it's just kind of, we just all accepted it. And then we just, and then, you know, then 2016 happens and it's like, it's a different focus now. But yeah, I've ever, I kind of felt that way. Like, how do we stop? It's coming. It's here. How do we stop it? What do we do? And now we're like, oh, sorry, we have something else on our agenda. So I think that's kind of what's going on. Let me, let me tell a funny story just to break it up a bit. <laughs> you know, our friend, our friend Kareem mm-hmm. would visit San Francisco from LA every few years, every year actually. And I remember one year, it must've been 2000, I want to say 14 or 15. He came, he flew in and he had a whistle on, like he had a whistle, like this metal whistle, like a designer whistle that he got from a website that split the proceeds with this nonprofit in Africa. The, the whole concept was based on kids that would blow the whistle whenever um, the army would come wow. in, a, in a country in Africa. And so that whistle paid for, for education for the kids, but it looked like a nice whistle. And everyone was like, why did you bring this whistle to San Francisco? He's like, just watch. And so we went out and like every single spot, they were playing blow the whistle and he had that whistle and he was ready. And he's like, yeah, this is why I brought that whistle. This is great. And uh, man, when the first time we saw it, we we're like, this guy's a genius. <laughs> that's amazing. It's like, I remember, I remember one time going to a place and there was a guy playing a saxophone live and he was just, or a trumpet, truck saxophone or trumpet. And I knew he was just waiting for outcast to come on. Oh, spotty. Da, 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 da. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, you're going to play my song, right? <laughs> Those are the good. But I was going to say, you know, I, I wanted to add, since you're talking about the podcast and, and tales, you know, but, and I, I mentioned the whole, like, you know, racist door codes and, and whatnot in clubs. You know, I think to give tech credit, I, in a way, I can say, you know, the new clubs are opening for like techies. They weren't really on that shit. They were just, I don't know. They just, uh, I guess their, their interest was just, you know, trying to like bougie up a bunch of food and make, things quirky and serve things in a mason jar these other clubs i was talking about that would have a guy playing saxophone over your beats or you know your whatever those clubs were inherently racist and they're they're also like bottle service clubs and those were years where playing hip-hop was like bro what are you doing you know though hip-hop was like super popular it wasn't like it went it wasn't like it's like rock and roll music where it's obscure now 
like it was still, you know, they still high Fiera, the little John era, Jay Z, tons of other like you know early hip hop stuff. So it was like even though they knew that was popular, they were like, no, we don't want scary black and brown people here but you know but it was so i gotta give tech some credit in that way in terms of the venues you, you know it isn't you do bring up an interesting point because when i think about the early like 2010s like that era it was kind of a down moment for not just bay area rap but just hip-hop music in general like the whole everyone was listening to edm or that's where that's where the trend in music and I wonder, and that was kind of the, like the really, the peak years of what, what, what do we call this? Dotcom 2.0 yeah. of the gentrification of San Francisco. And I, I don't know, you can speak cause you were, you were in that world. Like, what was that like for you? You weren't really, were you, were you still playing hip hop or were you playing EDM? Well, yeah, I, I don't think it quite happened yet. I don't think because I think they all, there's an overlap of like the you know the this bottle service EDM pop world I'm talking about, and like right as it ended, the start of gentrification was happening, and then I, at the same time, like a new wave of music emerged. You know, do you have like a timeline that you can give to the listeners? Or I would say the start of like for me tech the tech gentrification is 2011 2012. You know, and at least in my head. Okay. Yeah. And it's at the same time, I feel that's also like a very fertile, like era of like new underground music that, you know, what started emerging a lot of new acts and a lot of, you know, so it's, it's pretty distinct. You know, the, I, I, I see them for me personally as an artist as like two separate lives, like got it. bottle service, Patrick and post bottle service, Patrick. Can you describe what it's like now? <sighs> what it is now I think it's, well, first of all, to give context, as a DJ, I've pivoted. I still do clubs on occasion, but luckily my career is like flourished. So I'll DJ in other cities. I'll do a lot of corporate and big tech events. I'll do a lot of weddings. So I'm able to, you know, make a living as a DJ, not rely on clubs, which is, should it's always something they really do, regardless if you're, if, if we're talking gentrification or no gentrification. But at the same time, part of that, I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional, would maybe go and seek out that work, not because it was coming to me and I could do it really well and get paid, because also just like less and less venues for people to play. So to answer your question, what is it like right now? John and I have talked many times. We can count the total amount of clubs that have actual DJs and they're like a proper dance club in some regard probably count them all in total in like two hands and that's like we're like casting a wide net we're not just saying the places we go to and where where, where we work at we're just talking everything so what john what was like seven or t- i think we said seven or eight places total in san francisco yeah in san francisco it's pretty slim and then you cross the bridge there's probably even less you know less of a handful yeah of places that are proper like when you think of it what we're talking about just nightclubs mm-hmm. Even, yeah, myself, like, I've never really been a club DJ, but I've been a really good bar DJ. So I've been playing <laughs> a lot of, you know, smaller rooms. We're talking about 50 to 100 people. And and that's kind of the lane I've always been comfortable playing. And it's less about DJing as a, as a service there and more about me throwing my own parties. And I think that's how I've been able to just be successful or maintain some sort of relevance as a nightlife person mm-hmm. is 
creating safe spaces for people to come and, and relax. And I found out that's a lot easier to do at a bar, a dive, a neighborhood bar than it is a nightclub. So, yeah, if I could just add to that, I think what John is saying is, is, is like super key, especially right now, the idea of community and a safe space. That's something we always talk about on the podcast. We always interview when we have guests that throw their own events or have become famous because of their own events. I ask them what their philosophy, what their reason is. It's always that. It's always something about that no one ever says, I want, I just wanted to have my name to a Kraken party. It's like that's like the last thing. It's always say a community, a place, whether it's a community of people of the same, you know, philosophy, the same identity, or the same musical yeah. taste. And they're always it's because they're trying to provide something left of center. So, and I, I just want to add also to that, playing in a, like a nightclub club in San Francisco, I mean, no offense to my friends that do, but that just sounds like the wackest thing. It's just like, it's the lamest people. So I think a bar and a smaller place like Madrone, which is like my home base, I do a monthly there. That's like the perfect place because it's small. You have a neighborhood element, you have locals, you have a staff that cares about you. Your friends come and it, they're, they're respected and they're felt and they're appreciated. And that's way more important than like, oh, hey, I met some 600 brand new place full of a bunch of like toxic people so that don't vote or whatever, so that don't believe in COVID. So I'm not, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's interesting. You talk about the safe space. I mean, I feel like for, for years, there would be certain parties and venues where black and brown and Asian folks would come back to San Francisco after moving out and raising a family and they'd come back to, to have sort of one one last or one additional party. Like I I, I consider the um the cream of beat party after yeah. the day of Thanksgiving be that. Uh-huh. You know, you see a bunch of like late 40, 50 year olds coming back uh-huh. <laughs> to the city. Yeah. Like is there still spaces like that? I mean, I would say, you know, somewhat, you know, wonderful and soul slam, the party that I'm a part of with Hakoba and Marky. Is that in a way? It's like that one party where everyone gets their babysitter or, you know, one party where they don't go out anymore because there's no places to go anymore. They've been pushed out of San Francisco. They'll come in and, and yeah, exactly to your point. They'll come in and, and check that out. And again, coincidentally, that's a very diverse party, not just in, you know, ethnicities, but also class and age too, which is, I'm, I'm really stoked about. But that club, Mezzanine, we're talking about, full circle, they got bought out by some office company and then they got bought out. Of, something happened where they're going to be a club, but who knows what kind of club it's going to be. I, I don't know. And now we're present COVID. So who knows what that's going to be. So I, I always look forward to Wonderful every year because it did feel like a reunion of sorts. I think we kind of touched on this earlier, but San Francisco used to be the destination for life, nightlife. Mm. And it's a, probably a combination of gentrification and everywhere else in the Bay Area kind of developing their own nightlife scenes. People aren't really traveling for entertainment or recreation anymore. But when you have a party like Soul Slam or Wonderful, especially Wonderful, because there's something about the music, Stevie Wonder, it's around Christmas every year. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Always in this, the second week in December. Yeah. So folks are usually in town. People have that spirit in them. And that's where you would go, get the sitter, book a hotel room, yeah. and see faces you haven't seen in a minute. You yeah. know? And it... When there were moments when I was in San Francisco and really feeling the, I guess, emotional effects of gentrification, I knew I could count on, you know, those type of parties to really kind of fulfill myself again, you know? Yeah. I think I just want to add, like you mentioned the emotional effects. I think 
those emotional effects can also come back when there's not just a subtraction, when there's an addition to that. Yeah. I, I go to this party called Sazon Libre. You know about it, John. And I think I think I brought you, Vu. I think I've told you about it many times. Going there, that spot, it's like, oh, this is what I've been missing most of my life as a San Franciscan going out because it's it's a very it's very specific. And it's also what I've been missing in the current, you know, post-tech era of San Francisco. I, you know, I was mentioning the survivors of gentrification earlier. I think that's where we all go. Like people that grew up in the mission that didn't get pushed out, their families are from the mission, or they've been in the Bay Area a super long time. In San Francisco specifically, they all go there. And it's at El Rio, which is a, a queer LGBTQ Latino bar, a Latinx bar in the mission, in Bernal Heights. So it, that's where survivors go. Of, of tech and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's in- interesting. When I go there, there's maybe a handful of folks who look like they're, you know, they recently moved in and they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they enjoy it. They're, they they definitely do enjoy the local scene, but I mean, there is so many locals there <laughs> when you go. Yeah, and, and I think another thing is that John was saying about familiar faces, and that's another thing you'll see familiar faces at there. And familiar faces aren't as common as they once were, especially as, as what we're talking about. And what do you think was going to happen when we get out of quarantine? I would imagine everybody is just going to flip out and just spend <laughs> every weekend out partying right after they get their vaccine. Okay, yeah. <laughs> guys are to the club. Yeah. To the bar. I think the caveat is vaccine. And the other caveat, as an important, is will there be any places to go? And I think that's a harrowing idea to come to think about, especially as somebody that makes a living partly to that. In a perfect world, to answer your question, in a perfect world scenario, there's a vaccine, clubs still hang out. It's people going to get pregnant, you know, both guys and girls. This is going to be wild in a, in a good way, pregnant with emotion. If people would just be happy to go out, go out and be around people. And John and I, John is also, oh, I should mention, John is also my roommate or we're roommates. So when we make coffee, we chop it up in the morning. I think we go, oh man, what's the first cuffing going to be like? And we're like, oh, I can't wait. So I, I think, yeah, I think, I think people, I really appreciate, and our guest, Spinny Reed, I said this last night on our show, is that hopefully venues and people and other DJs will appreciate what we do and who we are a lot more. Because I think there was an idea of expectation that wasn't a healthy expectation. People just kind of expect us to show up DJ, you know, you get paid, but we decide and just, you know, all this terrible stuff. So hopefully that will change when we uh, get back to quote unquote normal or better normal, I should say. Yeah, I, I don't know. For me, it's a little tough to call just because if we're talking vaccine, what, one or two years, my personal thing, uh, if we're lucky, right? Oh, no. I thought the lucky is a two year shit. I thought that was like just the up to like the, the harsh, re- the harsh reality. I, fuck, two years old. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's kind of getting to my point. We don't know what, we don't know where culture is going to be yeah. in two years you know if we're just using that as a reference point it's it's a little hard for us to be to kind of make a prediction on that you know or at least for me i would like to think we would all go out and party and people are going to get pregnant but i also wonder you know how people what's it going to be like how are people going to connect you know and the more i think about what we do as dj's yes it, we're we're playing music we're giving people an escape but what i'm realizing now more than ever is we're we're building communities we're building alternative spaces for people to escape connect meet each other and provide this recreation experience if people are finding other ways to do that now I think the way they do it coming out of it will look unfamiliar to us as the previous facilitators of that community. So 
I think it's important for us to, yeah, we should be thinking about where things are headed, but we also have to acknowledge that there's going to be a new underground that we don't know about because we're inside, you know, people right now are connecting and yes, irresponsible, but there's been a lot of the, a lot of the things we know and love have come out of irresponsible behavior. You know what I'm saying? Hip hop is a product of irresponsible behavior. I mean, Grant, that's me overlooking all the sy- systemic things around that and the innovation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, like they were partying in unsafe spaces, you know, not by choice, but that was just the, that was what the reality facilitated. So yeah, who knows what it's going to look like once the vaccine hits. Great. Yeah, if I could, if I could just add real quick, that reality in these alternative spaces that John's talking about has been Twitch, you know, has been Zoom, has been IG Live, things like that. That's that's you know, if we're talking, if we're going to ask the question about what's the future going to hold, we also have to you know answer the present, and that present part of that is again, John does a great every morning, but Tuesday through Friday. I'm, I'm sorry, Monday through Friday, every morning, John does a, a stream on Twitch, nine to eleven. Is playing. A lot of R&B, a lot of, you know, like sometimes you'll do a hyphy set. Speaking of hyphy, you'll do like a lot of R&B, like throwbacks. And that to me has been a really good connection to people because there's like a chat, a chat room. And then that chat room is people from all over the country, even some people overseas. And now we're getting to the point where we're, you know, there's regulars and we go, hey, what's up? We all say good morning. We all say good morning. John has created a specific kind of vibe and a sound. And I'm sure this is replicated experienced you know and hundreds of other hundreds of other chat rooms or t- in twitch chat rooms or twitch streams as we speak and more will come out of it and i'm sure it's gonna it's happening in zoom happening in ig stories and happening in other places so yeah th- there's a lot of there's a lot of variables you know we could t- you know from the medical part to what we're talking about, about art and how it's always going to find a way to, to thrive in safe spaces and unsafe spaces as well it's crazy that well, all that plus you mentioned Twitch, Zoom, and Instagram Live, which are all Bay Area companies, which are all recent tech Bay Area companies. Right. I mean, San Francisco, San Jose. It's just crazy that, I mean, we're essentially, for lack of a better you know, explanation, it's just the center of the world right now. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how else to explain that. It feels like someone, someone asked me sort of what I think local Bay Areans or San Franciscans in particular think about gentrification and the way that it was best described to me from a San Franciscan was we had no idea that it would be here. Mm-hmm. Of all the places, if you look at the history of humankind and think about you know all the places that have had innovation, if America was going to have a tech hub, like the least likely place would be San Francisco. Yeah, and that's 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 sort of the reaction of of locals. And to hear that the next wave of you know whatever whatever underground music comes out of this at some at some point we're going to be listening to bloops and bleeps it's going to get to that point we already do (laughs) (laughs) it'll be the dial modem sound the aol sound yeah but tunes and then there you go yeah yeah and then it's all going to be on twitch and zoom and instagram and bay area folks are going to benefit from it because it's going to be tons of more money coming into the bay and it's still going to i don't know it just seems like a cycle that's going to keep on happening and pushing out people here yeah i I mean i think i was going to say is that gentrification is, is always happened in San Francisco. Like look at the Fillmore and look what you know the black population in, in San Francisco, you know, completely decimated and wiped out, you know, from you know terrible real estate developers speculating to you know the the kind of the city machine that was in cahoots with them. So that's always happened. But in at the hands of tech, 
you know, bringing new people, pushing new people, bringing new people, pushing new people. Yeah, I think what you're saying is true. It's going to be cyclical because, like I stated earlier, there was already another tech gentrification that pushed out a lot of people, and then that calmed in the new wave, and then they got pushed out. So, yeah, it's I I, I think that's going to be a it's a constant thing, just like New York and LA has their own push and pull factors. You know? Yeah, I, I think related to is just uh, how urban centers will look after this. Though you could probably speak more to about how cities were changing pre-pandemic. But what are how are people going to view dense living environments, you know, after COVID? Is that that's going to affect the way people party? You know, I mean, that affects people the way people live, which will affect the way they party and go out and connect. Can you shine some light on that end? Yeah, you guys, you guys both basically alluded to it. You know, when we first built Everybody used to live in the downtown in the city, and then we built suburbs, and then white folks were the first ones that could afford it. And so they moved out, and the folks left behind were people of color. They were typically, you know, neighborhoods that that were dealing with poverty. And then fast forward it, you know, we started investing more and more in downtowns, and they started being the places to be. White folks started moving into the downtowns and gentrifying the downtowns. And what you're seeing, uh, and then people of color were moving out into deep suburbs. Like we're not talking like Sunnyvale, we're talking Antioch, Mountain House, the Far East Bay, as I call it. San Jose for the past 10 years has been a place, a destination. We've also had gentrification, but it's also been a place where black and brown folks have been moving into, even though we have a very low uh, amount of um, black folks here, less than San Francisco. And what you're seeing now is people are moving, um, who can afford it, are moving out of downtowns there you know there's people that are living next to the twitter building that have been indoors for three months and wondering why they live in such a tight little apartment before it was great because you you know the apartment is where you slept so you would go downstairs go to a cafe in the morning go shopping go get brunch get drunk go out to another bar go out go out museum go out museum all this stuff and then come home late at night and crash and do it all again but now that you're if you're in your 448 square foot apartment uh, you're starting to realize and question whether or not you really need to be a 15 minute walk to work if yeah. work is just if you can stare at your computer from your bed and so you know i would say about 15% of the people I work with in San Francisco have already moved. I had a colleague move to um, Sacramento. I had a colleague move to Walnut Creek. Yeah, it's happening. I don't know. I mean, the theory is that there are people going to come back eventually, but not right now. Right. And, and then is it... What's what's funny is that what you just described gives me a hint of like joy, maybe other people as well, because, oh, that means rent and costing will go down. And these techies that we all kind of unfortunately just lump as just like boring dweebs will leave and, you know, they'll be cool people now or whatever. But yeah, it's not as clear cut and dry as we think it's going to be. Like there's going to be drawbacks. There's going to be, you know, pros and cons of people leaving San Francisco. So, but overall, my initial reaction is, ooh, less roommates. No offense, John. <laughs> The thing about the thing about displacement in San Francisco is there's, a, I forgot which number it is, but it's, the way that it works is, let's just say there's 20,000 people that get displaced from San Francisco, right? Let's just assume that. That's not true. I don't know what the number is. But it doesn't mean that 20,000 people just get up and leave San Francisco, if this is a yearly number. What it means is 100,000 people move into San Francisco and 120,000 people move out. 
And so it's a churn, right? So you're actually losing 120,000 people and it's being replaced with another totally different group of 100,000 people. Sure, sure. But the 20,000 are the ones that you're losing, mm-hmm. the displacement. And that's getting the numbers all wrong, but you get the idea. It's it's not a solid number that just leaves. It's a larger number of people that move in and an even larger people number of people that move out. And mm-hmm. the people moving out are people who can no longer afford to live here and they're usually moving into places that have lower quality services, you know, worse hospitals, worse jobs, worse worse air quality, worse everything. So, yeah, it's real. Yeah, worse schools as well. That's right. Yeah, and, and, and that's and there's a cycle to that. Speaking of cycles, for better or for worse, it's found right there too. All because Chad from Ohio is going to get paid, fresh out of college is going to get one hundred ninety thousand dollars to you know make a an app that does something for your dog. Because you're too lazy to do it. But it but it does mean that you're going to start a cuff in, in Disco Bay, right? Discovery Bay? No, 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 that means I'm going to go and get hired for the company I talk shit about and get paid a bunch of money to DJ their overpriced party. So again, talk about cycles. You know, I'm, I'm definitely in that kind of, a, I'm a culprit in that in that situation. How long are you guys going to stay in San Francisco? Like, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not moving back. Well, you're out. I mean, you bought a place. I left two years ago. Yeah. By the way, for our listeners, his place was like, <laughs> One of the illest spots ever. It was like right in ground zero. Rent was cheap. Is you had you kept it very immaculate. It was it was really like I was. It was a nice place. Yeah, man. Yeah, even John's like, yo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was it was really nice. Oh yeah, seven hundred square feet with a slight gas leak and a little bit of a water leak. It's fine. Okay, but see the millions of times I was over there spending the night partying with everyone else that never came up. So I don't know. It, you don't. It could have been that bad, but I I don't know. To be in San Francisco proper, I have no idea. It's that's because that's a question that also involves you know my family, my girlfriend who lives in Daly City. You know my what I do for a living now, what I want to do. You know because you know I went to college and got a bunch of degrees and want to use that stuff. So I I really don't know. But in a perfect world, to use that term again, I would stay here until it's time to go to the big DJ booth in the sky. Or Sacramento. <laughs> oh, you mean you mean like a rooftop bar somewhere? Is that what you're talking about? Very, very, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm in a very similar boat. You know, my family's all out in Sacramento. Uh, my partner's in the East Bay. And, but I think part of the reason I moved to the city in the first place was to be part of the city, you know? And so I never really had a desire to move to Oakland or you know, even Daily City, it was being born and raised in Sacramento, understanding the bubble lifestyle, I guess, and wanting to be in an environment where I can walk to the corner store or, you know, walk to the park, not have a car. You know, I grew up in a car city where you needed a car to just go to the store. And part of the appeal was, oh, I can walk to the corner bodega or liquor store or whatever and do all the things I needed to do. That's a part of the experience. That's a part of the lifestyle. And on top of that, just being, I I feel like my big thing is where is humanity going? Where are people going? And being here in San Francisco at the center of the tech universe, I feel gives me more of a pulse on where where that is as opposed to being back in Sacramento, you know, even though it's easy for one of my Sacramento homies to jump online and read about a self-driving car, 
seeing it outside my window. And that fascinates me, you know, just because this is our future. We're part of it. You know, we're in it. It breaks my heart at the same time, just because I knew what life was like before that, what San Francisco was before, you know, the tech boom. But yeah, I w- I'm trying to ru- I'm trying to hold out as long as I can. Yeah, you know. Yeah, until circumstances or responsibility call for otherwise. Yeah, it's it's that thing that survivor. You know, like I was able to, John too, were able to survive all that. You know, gentrification pushing back, and I feel, you know, I've so far I've I've made it through. Uh, I don't see getting you know pushed out of my spot anytime soon. Knock on wood. And I think part of it, maybe other people listening in other cities that are part of a community, you know, communities like this feel this too. Like there's almost like a sense of duty. Yeah. Like I need to stay here. Whatever. I mean, it's, and it's not really that duty I'm talking about isn't really too much a specific city. It's to a specific idea in a community. And, you know, I like to say I would be missed in a certain way or people like me matter in different ways. To your point, I used to be wary of playing hyphy records at the spots we DJ at just because they're kind of washed, they're a little old, but now I see it as very important to maintaining the integrity of the culture here. Mm-hmm. And just kind of a, you know, just a signal, you know, putting the signal out that, oh, if you know these records, this is a safe space for you. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, here, like, here's a, tra- here's a tracks a million record, you know, <laughs> here's a Mr. Fab record. Yeah. And, you know, this is, it's, it's kind of, if we're viewing music as therapy, it's, it's just putting the bad signal out that, oh, there's other people that remember what it was like here that want you to feel comfortable in this environment. And I feel that's part of our duty. That's our part of our responsibility. And, you know, if, if we have to leave that, then, you know, we, we let them win. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's definitely a little, little bit of that. And then also, yeah, with high fees, one of it, and also for me and maybe for a lot and tons of other DJs that do it way better is also playing like Latin music, you know, specifically, you know, reggaeton, yeah. you know, certain cumbia songs, Latin pop. That is, again, there is a Latino population in San Francisco, but it's very specific where it's found in terms of nightlife. And you playing not just like the biggest, biggest, like, you know, the global pop Latin song, but playing lesser known stuff from like years p- previous. Playing that is again, like that bat signal, like, oh, okay, this is, this is a, a place for me. And if you are saying like, oh, this is a place for me, then those are the type of people I try to cater to more often than not. While at the same time, still doing my job of like making sure everyone has a good time and, and the bars, you know, singing, the bars slinging alcohol and whatnot. So we're talking about swig, are we, John? <laughs> we are talking about swig. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, even even when I'm in Oakland, I, I make sure to throw in a decent amount of hyphy records. Sure. Well, for me, that's my that's my signal, you know, like because yeah, these are this is it captures a vibe, it captures an era, it captures a place. So it's a very distinct sound, not just production wise, but rapping wise as well. It's like super specific. It's super regional. Like you couldn't play these songs in other parts of the world at all. And if you did and it worked, it'd be like, you're from San Francisco or you're from Oakland specifically. Yeah. Yeah. It's nothing that, yeah. It's, it's, and like a lot of stuff doesn't even exist on Spotify or streaming, which is weird. So you have to just, you have to be there or your older brother, your older uncle, your dad played it and that's how you know it. It's really hard to hear this because, I mean, you guys are using words like survivor. And mm-hmm. as somebody who's left San Francisco, I feel like, you know, I, I, I spent 10 years surviving and now I'm thriving by being able to sort of get out and not have to deal with 
a lot of the pressures that you guys are facing. So, I mean, all I can say is kudos to you guys. The way that you talk about it, you're sort of the last holdouts and you need to be there for a purpose, which I completely respect. You know, the what what I hear about sort of gentrification, there's two different types of gentrification. The first is a lot of stuff that I work on, which is housing, right? You're okay. you're being pushed out, whether it's direct displacement, your your apartment's being taken over by a condo. Or it's secondary, which is, you know, a condo is opening up across the street and pushing you out. The, the second, which I don't think we talk about enough, is the gentrification of all the mom and pop and commercial and services. Like, if you're, if you somehow get a rent controlled apartment, you know, shout out to that person on this podcast now. <laughs> you know, let's just say your favorite bar closes, your mm-hmm. church moves to Antioch. Um, your barbershop moves to Daly City. All your friends get pushed and moved to Oakland. And your favorite grocery store, which is either you know a Mexican grocery store or a Chinese grocery store, closes down. Like, at what point is are is someone going to stay want to stay in the neighborhood? Like, or do you want to be like in every every city? There's always that seventy year old guy who comes out dancing. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be me. You know, reggae pops. <laughs> yeah, shout out reggae pops. Rest in peace. Shout out. Like, dude, is that is that what it's going to be like? Like, to be the last holdout? Well, I think the way you say it, holding out, there's like an idea, at least in my head, a connotation of you just don't know better and you can't give up. Like, you don't, you know, like you move on, hold, you know, move on, you can leave this dream. And it's not so much that. It's like, I want to be here. At the same time, I'm not against, you know, going to Daly City. Like, actually, if someone told me, like, yo, Patrick, there's a, like a really affordable place in Daly City and I like it, I'd be like, later, John. Because, you know, but also growing up in the Bay Area, it's different. Like, there's a lot of overlap in cities. Like, you don't go from one city to another, and, and in between is nothing. It's it's like a, it's a gentle massage from one place to the other. But, you know, you talk about thriving. I think kind of the circle back, you know, what you're saying happened to me, though, Fu. Like, when you bounced, when JP bounced, when all the mutual friends left San Francisco, Mary, I can go on and on. You know, it was tough. You know, it was, I kind of felt like, yeah, I was literally the last, I was the last person. It was like a tumbleweed going by me. But I think that's just, that's how life is. You know, people move, people leave, you know, it's not about gentrification. It's just, that's, that's just part of life, everyone's life. I was able to find, you know, communities that or you know, circles of friends that made it maybe not somebody that was holding off somebody that, you know, somebody that was like, like holding on to something, holding on to something that's like more important than just, you know, oh, I want to stay here out of pride, you know, finding, you know, our friends like John and Amp and et cetera, and then finding, you know, Saz and Libre that I mentioned earlier. So that's, I think that's the difference when you, when you have that little kind of period of uncomfort and all my friends are gone and you find something that's what kind of makes it worth it. And I think that's, I'm, I'm lucky in that regard. I think that's it. So, I mean, is there anything you guys want to want to talk about want to plug want to want to mention as we uh, as we finish up yeah uh john and i both do a podcast called opening set that we mentioned earlier if you enjoy this kind of discourse between the three of us then you would definitely enjoy opening set you can find it on spotify soundcloud apple music i myself can be found on instagram under hey king most as well as twitch which we were talking about earlier if you're a dj or a music collector you can find me on bandcamp under kingmost.bandcamp i'm actually uh, aside from DJing and, and doing podcasts, I'm pretty um, active in terms of putting out music, you know, remixes and, and original stuff as well. 
What about you, Mr. John? Yeah, you can find me on all socials at Stank Palmer, S-T-A-N-K-P-A-L-M-E-R. Like Patrick mentioned, I do a morning stream every Monday through Friday. It's called Per My Last Email. It's Mellow Vibes to help you clear your email inbox as you work from home or don't work from home. <laughs> and you can purchase music at johnreyes.bandcamp.com. Yeah, and also we're in the process of doing live versions of opening set season four. So season three is dropping right now. It's pre-recorded. Season four is live via Inside Lands, and they'll be posted later on our you know streams of uh, Spotify and whatnot. And the next few DJ guests are Steve Aoki and Bass Nectar, you said? Is that what you said? <laughs> Steve Aoki, Bass Nectar, Diplo, Jazzy Jeff. Who else? Who else, John? Shannon Sossaman. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, who's that? The DJ Harry Rock? He's like a stuff, he's like a mascot animal that's like super popular. Like all my you know what I'm talking about, John? Yeah. Yeah. He's a cartoon, not a cartoon like character, a but a children's I thought he was a children's TV show character. Yeah. Yo, why don't we get him on the podcast, bro? I mean, okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll reach out to his agent. <laughs> you want to do a podcast? Reach out to his people. Be like, yeah, we get a couple thousand uh, listens every episode, you know? So, <laughs> Thanks for listening, Yellow Parallers. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you find your favorite podcasts. Or just tell your smart speaker to play the Yellow Peril podcast. Have a comment or question you'd like to share with us, or an event, project, or story you think we'd appreciate? Call and leave a voicemail at 845-2-YELLOW. That's 845-293-5509. Email us at yellowperilpod at gmail, or follow us and drop a comment on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you enjoy the show and want to support us, please consider subscribing, following, leaving us a review, and supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash yellowperil. When you support us on Patreon, you'll also receive rewards, which include stickers, mugs, t-shirts, or even a guest spot on the show. This episode was brought to you with the help of our editor, John Yorte. And before we end the show, it's our karaoke closer. What would you guys like to sing as our special guest today? Something that we talked about today. A little CB Wonder? No, no, no. A little reggaeton? A little hyphy music. <laughs> John, you ready? Yeah. All right. I guess we're going to... Do, do, do we want to rap? Let's rap. Are we rapping? Yeah, I don't know. Rapping could be it's kind of uh, could be tough. Could be bad. Let's do. Um, well, John, you can actually sing somewhat because you're Filipino. It's like by law. So <laughs> was that is what Duarte? Did Duarte make the institute that law? Too soon. Too soon. No, I think Emmanuel Pacquiao did. Oh God. Nah. Let's uh, let's be topical. Oh, we could do Guapale. <laughs> Really? Because I was ready to do fuck Donald Trump, but... Oh, it's topical. Oh, you know, edgiest podcast in the game. Yeah, you. I'll, I'll do ad-libs. You do fuck Donald Trump. Dum, dum, dum. Fuck Donald Trump. Oh. Fuck Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> that counts, right, boo? Is this a karaoke? Yeah, that's really cool. I'm singing the hook to this record. Is that the Mac Miller song? Am I saying, is that the right Donald Trump song? No, it's, uh, you're not Mac Miller. It's, uh, <laughs> who's the dude from Seattle? YG. No, no. <laughs> no, who's the guy that won the album? Macklemore? Yes, Macklemore. <laughs> that's what I was thinking of. What happened to Macklemore? Great. Let's get him on the podcast, John. So. <laughs>
All right. This is right. how this is how the karaoke segment goes. Thanks, right? everyone. <laughs> Thanks so much, Boo. Thank you, Boo Bank. Thank you, Yellow Peril. Thank you, listeners, and thank you, Jeff Oki. That's gonna edit all this uh, magicness together.